Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is British filmmaker, composer-director Mark Jenkin. Mark made a big splash a few years back with his film and his score for Bait, and recently released the film Ennismane, an experimental folk horror film set off the coast of Cornwall in England. And not only did Mark write direct the film, but he also composed the score for it, consisting of tape loops, synths, and a number of really strange sounds as well, including, as you'll hear, rocks. It's a really cool, experimental, unorthodox score, and certainly one of my favorites of the year. So Mark and I get into that, discuss both his filmmaking process and his composing process, some of his influences, and of course, expand. And I think it's a very interesting conversation, different from probably every other one that I've had, given Mark's dual role. It's probably the first time I've talked with a director on the show as well. Of course, one that both directs and composes. Maybe I'll get Clint Eastwood on next. Now, of course, you can find out more about Mark on his social media, on his website. You can do the same for me. And before I forget, Mark is also going to be touring Ennis, Maine in the UK, I think, sometime this summer, later this year. He had recently, in May, done a single performance of his score live to the film. And about 70-80% of what he played was different, at least to some extent, from what's in the film. Unfortunately, I couldn't check it out, but I've heard it's really good. So keep your eyes open for that as well. I'm not sure how many interviews are left. Uh, I'd say maybe one to three. Getting really close to the end. It's been a fun season, but I'm not done yet. And until then, sit back and enjoy. I know a lot of the films and projects you do are set in Cornwall, like focusing on the landscape, the area, the heritage, the folklore. Why is that something that you've been so focused on? Um, I'm not consciously focused on it, really. It's just it's the stories that I want to tell come from here, really. That's not to say that they're all about Cornwall, but for me they need to be set here because I can only portray one place authentically, and that's hmm. here. I could make films elsewhere with a more with more of an outside eye. And in fact, I'm thinking of considering a couple of projects at the moment where I would be an outside eye in a sort of foreign landscape. And that brings a different perspective. But when I'm trying to create something that's authentic, it really has to be here. And then I draw on what's around me. And, and sometimes it takes putting it in a film and putting that film in front of an audience for me to realise that, that that is distinct to here. Because I just... I can't help but think here is kind of the same as everywhere else in the world. And then you put it in a film and then people go, what the hell is that about? Or where is that? And, you know, these things that are really familiar to me become quite abstract and alien to an audience, which is which is nice because I think the stories we tell are normally universal, but the the settings that they're, they're in are, are much more diverse and unique. And I think that's quite important. I'll say that was my wife's reaction to having watched Ennis Main of like, what was this? What happened here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good. As long as she's not looking for any answers from me. <laughs> All right. I won't try to pull them out of you anyways then. But, I mean, that's got to be kind of a common reaction to that film. Does that 
surprise you. I think a lot of people, when they watch movies now, they don't want ambiguity. They they want everything to be answered. And that that seems like maybe a naive way to approach films and to approach art. Yeah, I mean, I, I want ambiguity all the time um, in everything, really. You know, I want to be able to contribute as an audience member to what I'm watching. And that means there being gaps in the in the logic and in the story and in the language to allow the audience in. And I really like that. And I, I do, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that everybody's going to go with that. But the people that do go with that, I think, really connect with it. And maybe less and less people are prepared to embrace that ambiguity and get involved with art in that way. But then on the flip side, maybe it's the responsibility of the people who are making films mm. to serve up that kind of ambiguity and, and allow the audience in for the audience to really project their meanings onto what they're watching. Because then it, it becomes two-way. And then if it's two-way, that's true communication. I'm not really interested in films that are just a sort of a series of messages to tell a story. I want I want to be be involved. And I went to see a play the other night. It was a one one man show and the actor Jack invited me along to see it and it was incredibly ambiguous. It had no real conclusion to it. And it was brilliant. And I kind of walked out in a daze, but I haven't stopped thinking about it since then. And and that's what I want the audiences to really get from my films is that the film continues playing in your head long afterwards. And there is a risk that people will be annoyed by that. And some people get <laughs> really annoyed by it. You know, I've had people in the Q&As who've been quite confrontational about it and quite sometimes jokey about it, but you can always tell there's a there's a real frustration with some people. And, and if I make the mistake of ever reading letterboxed reviews, there's some really angry people on there. What's the worst or angriest comment question you've gotten or review that you've had the, the misfortune of seeing? Um, I don't know if there's a worst review because I don't, they don't bother me. Because I think I always put myself in their shoes. You know, I'm I'm an audience member. I'm an audience member much more than I am a film director. I was an audience member earlier on today when I watched a film. And I have strong feelings about things. And I wouldn't want anybody to judge me on those feelings. So I try not to judge anybody else. The only thing that irritates me about when people say something about the film, the only time it ever irritates me is when they claim that I've sort of been influenced by something or ripped off something hmm. that I know I've never even seen. And there's been a couple of people, critics actually, who've said, oh, this is a cheap knockoff of blah, blah, blah. And I've never seen the film that they're, they're talking about. And that kind of irritates me. But also, maybe you don't have to have seen it to be influenced. So maybe I'm being unfair on those people. But that does kind of irritate me. And at that point, I do want to sort of get in contact, say, look, actually, I haven't even seen that film. But, you know, that's not a game you want to play. Right. Well, I mean... In Depending on what the film was, too, some films, if they've come out 50 years ago, let's say, their influences may have seeped into other films. And so maybe you've seen a film that it's influenced, but you don't know that in the first place. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I kind of think. But I mean, this the, the particular one that irritated me came out two years ago. But then again, you know, the person who made that film could have been influenced by the same stuff that yeah. I'm influenced by. So, you know, and I'm not I'm not. You know, I love film critics. I love critical writing about my film. So I'm not, I don't want to be one of those people who moans, but it's just like, oh, you know, sometimes just want a little right to reply to say, oh, I didn't, I haven't seen that. It's not true what you're saying, but yeah. I can empathize. I I had a critical response for a play that I wrote a number of years ago where 
the critic was slamming me for having a self-insert in the main character. And I was like, well, this is based on a person that I know. I know that I'm not in this. And yeah, you you want to reach out, but like you said, there's nothing good that could come of that. It just it opens no. up a can of worms. No, and I, and sometimes I just have a word with myself and just say, you know, that's a top UK film critic writing about your work. Just stop and consider the fact that that is happening in your life. <laughs> Get over yourself. <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting, though, you saying that overall you you like critics and critical writing because I think there's... I mean, maybe it's always been the case, but it's it's been more public and more shared about a lot of um, directors or actors having a, a disdain for, you know, some maybe, maybe, you know, modern film criticism. I was wondering whether you have any, any thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, critically, I've, I come out of things quite well. You know, both of my feature films so far have been critically acclaimed, I would say. So it's quite easy for me to sort of say, oh, no, I, I like I like critics. I like all of the critical writing. I'm, I can't complain about it. So I, maybe if the next film gets absolutely panned, I'll have a stronger opinion about critical writing. But I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know whether I've kind of experienced that from other filmmakers. Maybe the filmmakers who I know are kind of appreciative of of any kind of criticism. But I do think the more criticism. The more critical writing, the the better for me, I think, because it indicates that film is is important and that it, that it matters. You know that it isn't just a form of entertainment that's just in the sidelines. You know that it's still that it's still important. I mean, and, and at the moment, I'm I'm supposed to be writing at the moment, but I'm spent because Can is on. I'm spending so much time listening to podcasts and mm. dispatches from Can and reading Screen Daily and all this kind of stuff, and I I love it because it's like. It's the time of the year, and there's a few moments like this, you know, Berlin as well is a little bit like it, where you just go, God, film is the centre of the world. And of course it's not, but it's the centre of my world, and for a moment, you know, and, and for the few days of Cannes, it does feel like film is the most important thing that's going on in the world. And, I th and that's, that feels amazing, you know, because we're constantly told that cinema's dead. Yeah. And it's not. You know, it really isn't. And so, I th you know, some critical writing is... Is great and some of it's awful but that's all subjective there's some critics that i will just i'll read anything they write and there are other critics that i just sort of tut and raise my eyebrows at every word that they write but then that's the beauty of it you know you kind of find out who you who you connect with and um there's a subjectivity there and the more the merrier for me but then again you know the two films that i've done have been critically acclaimed so if the next one gets torn to shreds by critics i might have a completely different answer for you <laughs> does it surprise you now that you're also getting critical coverage of your scores like earlier today i read a a review from pitchfork on your ennis main score and it you know mixes the coverage of both the standalone music and how it's used in the film as well yeah i mean that's that's the big that's the big shock for me <laughs> is is having um, two original scores released as records through in Invader in Bristol. I mean, that was something that I just really wasn't wasn't expecting to happen. For my last film, Bait, there was never going to be any 
score on that film at all. Mm. And there were some moments where it just needed something in the rough cut and I just dropped in some synth drones that I'd been playing around with in the privacy of my own studio, not a sound studio, my film studio. And I dropped them into the edit and they ended up staying in the film and we, myself and the producers got kind of attached to them and they ended up staying in the film. But I never thought of myself as being the composer. If you look at the credits of the film, there is no credit for Mm. the score because I just didn't feel, I didn't think of myself as being a composer or a musician. So I thought I've got no right to credit myself with that on, on the film. And then it was picked up by Invader who Reg at Invader in Bristol who saw the film and got in contact and said they wanted to put it out. By then I'd kind of gained some confidence and gained a sort of interest in in working on the score before shooting the film, during the shooting, during the edit, at the same time I was cutting it, creating the score. And it just seemed like a sensible thing for me to do because I was across so many departments of the of the film in production and, and post-production. So I did take credit for it on, on Ennis Main, but I still don't consider myself a a musician or a composer in the in the traditional sense but then a lot of my favorite film composers turns out kind of feel the same you know they they come at it from a almost accidentally it's interesting hearing you mention that and especially with the connection to invader just because i know i've seen jeff barrow who obviously does film music is involved in invader i don't remember if he if he owns it or runs it but I've seen him on multiple occasions kind of laugh at the idea of himself being a, quote, film composer, because he doesn't feel like he's, I suppose, earned that title. And I don't want to put words in his mouth or uh, you know read too much into it, but maybe sometimes of that just the idea of a, quote, composer doesn't necessarily apply to all film music. Yeah, I think if 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 that's what he's said, I think that's why I kind of I feel the same, you know. And I think maybe he didn't set out to do film soundtracks in the same way that I didn't set out to do film soundtracks. So it, it, I do, I do feel like I'm sort of treading on on people's toes, you know, because there are film composers and they're they're proper musicians, and um, <laughs> and I'm really not, you know. I just kind of stumbled into it, and I, and I do, I love it. I love doing it, and I love the I love the creative possibilities of doing the music for my films. And then sometimes I think, well, actually, I'd like to just do music. You know, maybe I'll do some music that isn't connected to a film. But at that point, I kind of think, no, just you're only doing this because of the film work. You're not a musician. This isn't sort of your calling. I guess on the same side, though, it raises the more abstract question of when does someone even become a musician? For, For writing, for instance, can you just call yourself a writer the moment you start writing? I think that that's the case for music as well. Once you start picking up an instrument or a, a piece of hardware and making music, then even if you don't believe it, I think it's fair to then call yourself a, a musician at that point. Yeah, I suppose I'm just probably thinking that because it's connected to film, it's a kind of higher form of art. Because if I did, you know, if I picked up a guitar and started singing and got a bass player and a drummer, then I would call myself a musician in a band. But hmm. I think it's maybe just because it's got a more rarefied legacy film composition. And there's certain kind of monoliths that you that are untouchable, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be in the position where I sort of start thinking that I'm being talked about and compared to those people. So yeah, it's probably much more my kind of hang up and my imposter syndrome kicking in than than any kind of truth. I mean, going from that, 
how, if at all, does music play a role in your filmmaking process? Because it's like, this is the first time I've talked with someone who is, at least to my knowledge, not just someone making music for films, but making the films themselves. If there's going to be music in the film, and there's not, there isn't music in all of my films, you know, quite a lot of my short films, I don't, I don't use music at all. I use sound design by, because I post-sync all of the sound, I use sound in a quite a musical way anyway, you know, it almost becomes a score in the way that it's sort of added. So if I've decided that I am going to use music in a film and create a score, then I create it in conjunction with the sound design of the film. And that's created at the same time when I'm cutting the pictures. So it's very early in the process that I'm thinking about music. And I'll be thinking about it while I'm writing. Writing's the hardest bit for me, the actual physical act of writing stuff down because you you kind of take a kind of idea that a lot of it is based on atmosphere then you try and articulate it with words which is a very difficult thing to do and and it's difficult because quite often it's very hard to articulate sound with words it's difficult enough to articulate pictures with words (laughs) but to then create any semblance of what the sound is going to be like in a script is really it's really difficult, which is why I find script writing quite a destructive process. You know, it's like for me, writing a screenplay is the process of taking a perfectly good idea and then ruining it because you're sort of so constricted by the language that you can use. So I'll play music, you know, music will, will be a big, a big part of my writing process. So hopefully what I'm writing is at least inflected with the atmosphere of the music that I've either curated or I've created. Yeah, and so in that early part of the process, when you're writing, how much of that is music that you're also writing or playing around with, and how much of that is pre-existing music that, you know, you're thinking might fit or might have a similar atmosphere to what you're trying to conjure? I try to have a cut-off point where I'll stop listening to existing music once we get close to production, and I certainly won't go anywhere near any pre-existing music when I'm in production or or in the edit unless it's going to be used diegetically in the film but the non-diegetic music will come from me because i don't want that heartbreak of getting attached to a piece of existing Mm. music that i know i can't use either because it's a sort of cheap option in terms of creating an atmosphere or it's an expensive option in terms of licensing the music and and the more sounds i kind of make and produce myself the more i the earlier on in the process i tend to tend to start working on a on a rough score that i can listen to while i'm writing and we can all listen to when we're shooting and then and then i can put into the edit quite early on in the process so at the moment that the new film that we're going to be shooting this time next year i'm already working on a little sketch idea for the score so i'm not really going near any pre-existing music but having said that you know i listen to there's certain things that i listen to all the time when i'm writing which are film soundtracks so I suppose that does that goes into the pot at that time. Are are there any particular film soundtracks that you've been listening to or that that come to memory at the moment? Yeah, I love um Simon Fisher Turner's score for Derek Jarman's film The Garden. I also love Warren Ellis and Nick Cave's score for Wind River, which mm. I think's just absolutely beautiful and at the moment, I've been listening to the um, Mulholland Drive soundtrack a lot. Oh, okay. I loved the film, but it took me a long time to get into the soundtrack as a as a sort of standalone piece of music. But 
the more I've listened to it, the more kind of addicted to it I've got. And I, and I suppose that's a good example of somebody who's kind of so rarefied that I think of as a you know a proper proper composer. Talking about diegetic music and licensed music, there is a part late in the film where you have what's credited as the May children singing the song, and then that song again appears at the end credits performed by Gweno. Can you tell me about where that song comes from and how you landed on choosing it? We wanted to have a, a, a traditional Cornish May song in the film, but I was I was quite conscious that I was wary about using an existing song because those songs are mm. so linked to specific places and specific communities that I'm not part of, that I wouldn't want to just use these songs that are, are very special just to put into a film. So we commissioned Gweno to write a new ancient Cornish May song, which is Can May, which means May song in Cornish. So we didn't choose it. We we okay. we commissioned Gwen to to write it, and she wrote it, and then she 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 sent us a a recording of it so that the the kids could learn how to how to sing it, and then she kind of recorded her own demo version of it, which was really good, which was very different to the way the kids sung it. And then she said she was just kind of programming her new record. So she said she asked us if she could put her version of the of the song on her album, which of course. We said yes. She recorded it with the band, which is the version that plays over the mm. end of the film. So I, I think actually, I think it appears like four or five times in different ways during the film. So we really got our money's worth out of it. It's a beautiful, timeless sounding, brand new May song that Gwen created for the film. Yeah, I mean, that totally could have fooled me. I, I mean, I, I had assumed that it was just an old folk song that had a modern cover of it by Gwono and not something made, let's say, a, a year or two ago instead. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad you were fooled. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that's one nice thing about, especially prior to watching or listening to something, is is trying to know as little as possible so the illusion of film catches you. Yeah, and I, th I think that's a tricky thing because you have to kind of promote it, but you want people to be surprised by the film. So there's a bit of a conflict there hmm. which which i think because of our suspension of disbelief and how incredible our suspension of disbelief is it's, it's less of a conflict than i think it is because you you get so caught up in the world of, of watching a film that i think everything you kind of know about it does if the film's working it kind of slips away which which is why you know a lot of people say to me oh i never watch trailers for films because i don't know anything about them and I, i've never kind of understood that because i can watch a trailer for a film and then go into the film and be totally surprised by everything that i've seen even though i may have seen it actually in the trailer so for me there's less of a conflict there see i'm i'm in that camp where i basically never watch trailers at this point partially for that reason but i think i like everything to be coming in fresh and unseen but some sometimes it has no effect like i i watched the trailer for the recent horror film skinnamarink and Part of that's how that trailer's done, but that just completely enthralled me and sold me on the film. So, I don't know. Going back a little, and I, I realize we're, uh, we're running close on time, I did just want to hear you talk about what went into the, the palette for your NS main score, some of the, the instruments, the field recordings, the other items like that, and, and how you landed on putting those together. 
I think what I tend to do, again, this goes back to me not considering myself a musician, is I look at the process before I look at the, the content or the form before the content, which is something that I've, some people accuse me of in, in all aspects of my filmmaking. But I, I set up a, a tape loop for the Ennis Main score, so two reel-to-reel tape machines with a sort of infinite loop running and that was the starting point for me and then I, I played different sounds into the loop and then kind of experimented from there I knew that I wanted this one to to have a certain melodic element to it so there's two kind of themes that run in the film the the Ennis theme and the Menir theme which are three or four note cycles really and I played them into the loop and they decay and distort and and abstract as they play through the loop and that and that was really the starting point for me and they, they were just played f- through a little analog a tiny little cork analog synthesizer lots of reverb and then endless echo with the tape loop but i also used a couple of rocks and a couple of pieces of metal scavenged from the the post-industrial landscape here to create some of the more rhythmic stuff and then i actually sang a little bit on the score as well which is something that i'm very self-conscious about there's just a few a few moments a few of the notes are actually my voice through a Hmm. really heavily reverbed mic into the tape loop so i just try different things and then just follow my gut if i like it then i keep it and if i don't like it then i tape over it and just because i like it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes it into the film because it might not work in the film right but it that's my kind of process and then and then just try and keep it as simple as possible you know not try and do too much variation because i think my, most of my favorite film scores are, are two sides of of music that's all variations ar- around a singular theme it's not like you're making a record with 10 or 11 distinct tracks on it it's all part of one piece and it's easier to keep it as one piece if it's if it's simple and the other thing with the tape loop i can manipulate stuff in infinite ways with the tape loop by slowing it down speeding up grabbing hold of it using really old tape using brand new tape all of that kind of stuff Mm. so there's a real um variate lots of variations i can get in there without thinking too much about different melodies and different themes interesting very interesting i i I do like those types of more unorthodox approaches just because i've always enjoyed things that exist a little more on the fringe I find it exciting. And it works here. I mean, both in the film, it's a really enveloping score. But I mean, also as a, as a standalone piece. And I suppose, luckily, I I enjoy things that are a bit more atmospheric or ambient or droning. So I think it turned out well on both. Yeah, I mean, I I like to play stuff that, I, that I'd like to listen to as well. In the same way that I like to watch films that I, I like to make films that I'd want to watch. You know, I also, I do like the idea of doing an ambient record that's not connected to the film which is just very simple drones around a central theme but again like i said before i don't i don't want to get distracted by kind of doing that when i've got films to make i know that there's the hesitation but i am fully supportive of of you doing an ambient album so i i hope that at some point that does come to fruition because having heard ennis main and bait i definitely think there's something interesting there that could come on a solo album or a ep or something but again talking about your your views on not being a musician i know that you had also performed the ennis main score live alongside the film with dion star as the corner sound unit 
So could you talk a little bit about that performance? We formed the, the Cornish sound unit, which is, like you say, is me and Dion. Because we've been talking quite a while about maybe making some electronic music together. And then I was approached by the BFI to do a live score event, the Ennis Main soundtrack. And the idea of me being up there in front of the film performing that score on my own was so terrifying that I spoke to Dion and said, maybe this is the time where we launch, formally launch the, the Cornish sound unit. So we got together and we, we reworked the score. And mm. I suppose about maybe 20 or 30% of it is the same as it is on the movie. But then we, we reimagined it, as they say. Uh, and we performed it on May Day in the National Film Theatre, Screen One at the BFI, in front of an audience of about 450 people, which was, oh, wow. which was pretty full on. But it was it was really so far removed from anything I'd ever done before. I I didn't really even get nervous about it. I, the lead up to it was kind of terrifying because we had to take a lot of equipment from here in Cornwall up to London for the event. It was the logistics of carrying all of our or my ancient tape machines and Dion's <laughs> pretty complicated modular synth system on the, on the train because door to door were about eight hours away. And by the time we got there and all of that. Had, been successful the actual performing of the score was it all seems like a bit of a dream now but we're going to go out and do it again we're going to do a, a, a few festivals and and play a few one-off cinemas around the country later this year or over the summer actually so it's something I'm, that you know like the sort of teenager in me who wanted <laughs> to front an indie band is kind of quite excited about this even though it's not standing up with a guitar and singing three minute songs it's it's the nearest I'm ever going to get to that. So it's it's quite exciting. And it's a good way to give more life to the film because a lot of people who came to see it at the BFI had already seen the film before and they came back to see it with a, that live element. It does give it something else. Because Gweno did it. She reimagined the score for Bait back in 2019 hmm. or 2020. And I sat and watched the film with her performing the score live with, with George Ellery, who, who's in the film. And it was amazing because it was like watching somebody else's film you know even though i cut that film shot the film written it and all of that to actually watch it with a different score on it it felt like somebody else's film and i and i looked at the film objectively for the the only time i've ever been able to do that i've scuffed myself this time because because with ennis main because i'm the one doing the live score i don't get the chance to sit down and, and, and get that objectivity but i think the, the temptation to perform it live and to and to do that with with dion was too great to let anybody else do it this time and performing in front of that size of a crowd, that's got to, in one sense at least, or one aspect, kill the the imposter syndrome living inside. Because that's like, that's a real audience. I mean, 450 people, most bands that are performing or touring, like, would kill for that. And again, that's the, my imposter syndrome does kick in. Because, you know, I do think, oh yeah, there are bands who've never played to that many people and they're, and they're they're much better than I am, but uh, by it, I always think of it as, as something that's an add-on to the film. You know, I I wouldn't expect to get up and play an ambient set in front of four hundred and fifty people if I hadn't made a film. If the album comes out, you know, you've uh, you've got that built-in audience already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I could be one like one of those um, filmmakers who then suddenly decides they want to be a rock star and just sort of sidesteps and takes the audience with them. Kind of despised by real bands. But yeah, I know, you know, it's something that if it benefits the film and it, if it gives the film an extra lease of life and it gives the audience an, another way of experiencing the film, then I'm, then I'm happy to do it. As soon as it stops being that, then I'll stop doing mm. it. But it'll probably take somebody to tell me that that's happened. 
So I'm relying on the people around me to say, yeah, maybe don't do that again. And until then, you're living out the teenage dream, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I did say to Mary, my partner, who's who plays the lead in Ennis Main, I did say, I, I was joking, but I did say, I might just put a, like a big guitar solo in the middle of Ennis Main. <laughs> I can get up and just like, you know, I can just play a really, really long, awful guitar solo all over the film. That would be the real teenager in me coming out. <laughs> hey, I, I hope I hear those complaints at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey, well, Mark, I I really do appreciate you joining me and uh, enduring the the technical difficulties and all. No, no, not not a problem at all. Once again, thank you. Have a good weekend. Uh, I appreciate you, and hopefully one day I'll uh, I'll make it to Cornwall. Yeah, well, maybe we'll end up playing Cambridge Cambridge when you're over. Fire oh, a huge coincidence. <laughs> yeah. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, you take care. Yeah, you too, Nick. Cheers, then. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.